0: So we'll start by just sort of outlining that our understanding of uh, new therapies really stems from our understanding of the pathogenesis of IBD. Um, We understand that genetically susceptible hosts, um, and there are many different kinds of genes that are contributing to the risk of IBD, um, in people who all of whom have a microbiome the microbiome might also be disturbed in various different ways These things interact in a negative way that end up in producing IBD and this is a nice depiction of this um, From a very good review article published by Ryan Ungro and Lancet a couple of years ago So at the very top of it all we have the microbiome Uh, Beneath it, we have the cells reacting in the epithelium and in the submucosa that are the immune-mediating cells, and then we have various stages of inflammation where the inflammation is bolstered by recruitment of inflammatory cells from the periphery into the mucosa to amplify the inflammation, and that leads to the breakdown of the mucosa, as we know. So this leads to a number of unique sets of targets, and the ones that I'll talk about Include ways to affect the microbiome. I really will not de- delve into uh, fecal microbial therapy, which is a topic unto itself and really is blossoming in a very interesting way. I'll show you some very new data about antibiotic therapies. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about anti leukocyte trafficking antibodies. Brian showed you some of the basis of that, and these include natalizumab, vetalizumab. Uh, Etrolizumab, abrilimab and anti-MADCAM4. Abrilimab I won't really talk about. It's an anti-alpha-4-beta-7 antibody, very similar to vetalizumab, actually, study just published by Bill Sanborn, uh, currently uh, just released as of a week or two ago, but I'll show you other data. Then we have the anti-IL-12 and anti-IL-23 antibodies, so we have ustekinumab, and then a variety of uh, anti-IL-23 antibodies which are Brazikamab, risankizumab, and mirikizumab. also Gazelkamab coming along. We have this SMAD7 inhibitor called Mondrosin that we'll mention very briefly, and a new class of agents called the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor modulators, which are ozanamide and atracimide, among others in the field. And finally, the JAK kinase inhibitors, which include tofacitinib, approved in June this year for treatment of UC, filgotinib, and upadacitinib. So let's start with the antibiotics. Um, This is interesting, this is the hypothesis that would never die Um, that uh, mycobacterium avium subspecies are the cause of Crohn's disease. And because of this, there have been multiple studies now directed at eradicating MAP. And this is another one. This is a very large phase three randomized controlled trial of this combination antibiotic, which includes clarithromycin, rifibutin, clofazamine, uh, given as five capsules twice a day for up to 52 weeks. And it's really targeted against MAP. This was a big study with 331 patients. They all had moderate to severely active Crohn's disease. Unfortunately, it does not seem that the patients were pre-screened for MAP specifically. Um, but they interestingly could have continued on their background therapies, including anti-tumor necrosis factor biologics. Now, as you all know, we screened for TB before, this is mtb before putting people on uh, anti-tnfs one would think that this would be contradictory to the hypothesis of uh, this agent the primary endpoint was an old-fashioned cdai less than 150 or clinical remission Uh, although I believe endoscopy was incorporated we have not seen those outcomes yet and indeed they did hit some of their outcomes here Um, they showed superiority of uh, remission at week 26 so six months Um, even early remission at week 16 remember this is a symptomatic remission Um, and this was even approaching uh, significance even in the anti-tnf treated group Um, but this surely does not show Curative effect in 100 percent of patients with Crohn's disease. And so I think this hypothesis just needs to go away. Um, Switching to anti leukocyte trafficking antibodies, of course, the, the grandfather of all would be natalizumab, which is an anti alpha 4 antibody, and that blocks both alpha 4 beta 1 which combines with VCAM and alpha 4 beta 7, which is relatively specific for mucosal surfaces, especially in the gut. So hence the gut specificity that Brian mentioned to you before, and uh, therefore the extraordinary safety of this agent, and in fact, uh, the big concern early on was that blocking alpha 4 beta 7 would also have a risk of PML, just as we have seen with uh, natalizumab, which is why the drug is no longer used in Crohn's disease. But to date, um, many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of of patients with IBD have been treated with uh, vetalizumab. And there has been precisely one case of PML, and that turns out to have been in a patient who had HIV, which was presumed to be the etiology of the PML, which is a known risk factor. So other approaches are to block beta-7 alone. And when you do that, you're blocking uh, alpha-4 beta-7s binding to MADCAM as well as alpha-E beta-7 binding to E-cadherin on the epithelial cells, which is a way that intraepithelial lymphocytes target their way into the mucosa. So in theory, blocking beta-7 could have two different mechanisms rather than the one that's seen with alpha 4 beta 7. It is unknown at this point whether that actually translates into any therapeutic benefits. Um, Down at the bottom you see PF O5, etc., 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 which is an anti-MadCAM antibody. So instead of blocking the integrin binding to that, you're actually blocking the ligand, blocking binding to MadCAM and interfering in that way. So I'll show you just a little bit of data on etrolizumab. Brian referred to this. Um, this is um, etrolizumab in UC, an uh, early phase study, and you can see that most of the efficacy for this agent in UC was observed in the anti-TNF naive patients. Um, overall, it seemed to have suggestion of efficacy, but much more so in the anti-TNF naive patients. Whether this is a specific effect or really something that we see considerably with many different agents is not totally clear. Um, interestingly, there's this potential predictive biomarker of alpha E expression. Remember that when you block beta seven, you blocking alpha E beta uh, 7-bearing lymphocytes from making their way into the mucosa. So whether you looked at real-time quantitative PCR or immunohistochemistry, the patients who had higher expression of alpha E in the mucosa had a much higher likelihood of responding to etralizumab so this suggests this could be a potential way of selecting patients for this treatment who might derive the most benefit from it as with all biomarkers this one and all the others that i'll tell you about uh, to come this has to be replicated in subsequent data sets if we're going to really use them in the clinic now as for the ligand if you bind to anti if you bind to MadCAM and block that specifically This um, anti-MADCAM antibody study in ulcerative colitis um, showed this interesting bell-shaped response curve. You can see at the very highest doses, the drug appeared to be less efficacious. Now, these are small numbers of patients. It's not clear if this is a fluke of the data set or really something biologic going on here, Uh, but it does appear that this was beneficial as compared to placebo. Um, Also, as I mentioned before, there's a much higher response rate in the TNF-naive patients than in the TNF-experienced patients, although even in the TNF-experienced patients there seems to be a 10% superiority in achieving uh, clinical remission. Now in Crohn's disease, unfortunately with this agent, um, there was no apparent efficacy over placebo. You'll note that these placebo response rates are very high. This did not incorporate endoscopic objective outcomes, which might have minimized the placebo response. So I think at the moment it's an open question whether this agent might work in Crohn's disease at all. We'll turn now to uh, blocking IL-12 and IL-23. And the first thing you need to understand is that both IL-23 and IL-12 share in common the subunit uh, P40. But uh, distinctly, P19 is found only in IL-23. So with Eustakinumab, which binds to P40, you're blocking both IL-12 and IL-23. When you block P19, you're only blocking IL-23. We could have a long discussion about whether it's theoretically beneficial to block just one of these as opposed to blocking two things. Is two better than one, or is one better than two? And it actually is not clear. There are biologic arguments on either side. Um, Interestingly, if you look at um, IL-12 and IL-23, if you look at um, IL-23 as a factor in both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, genetically, there is a polymorphism of the receptor for IL-23, which actually is protective for both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis which suggests that blocking IL-23 should be beneficial in both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Of course, it is beneficial in Crohn's, and a couple months ago, um, we presented data showing that ustekinumab also is effective in ulcerative colitis. These are the induction data, the primary outcome of clinical remission at week eight, and you can see with both of the doses tested, these are exactly the same induction IV doses that are approved in Crohn's disease. There was a treatment effect of 10% over placebo for clinical remission in UC. And depending on whether the patients were uh, biologic failures, and this included a fair number, about 15 or 16% of the patients had failed more than one biologic, including an anti-TNF and vetilizumab in in 16% of the cases. um, And uh, more than half of the patients were, were biologic failures you can see that um, the effect size is the same regardless of whether they were biologic experienced or not, but the absolute rates of clinical remission are higher in the non-biologic failure patients, and this is common observation really for all agents. Also, the, uh, the study showed superiority for endoscopic healing, as well as clinical response. With clinical response, you have an outcome that suggests that the higher loading dose may be slightly more efficacious. The maintenance data has not been presented yet, and I think that will be potentially very telling about which dosing might be superior over time. And this is a novel outcome of mucosal healing, which incorporates both endoscopic healing and histologic healing, and showing that this outcome can also be achieved with ustekinumab. So this is obviously uh, very interesting and uh, very exciting data. But if we're turning now just specifically to the anti-P19 antibodies that block IL-23, we have really excellent data with this agent, risankizumab, in Crohn's disease. Here you see the clinical response data, and uh, really both of the doses are more effective than placebo uh, at achieving clinical response. Most of the patients achieving clinical response, in fact, are achieving clinical remission. And importantly, if one looks at the middle row for endoscopic response, which is a 50% drop in the endoscopic scoring system, you see very uh, marked superiority over placebo treatment. These are small numbers of patients, and yet you see very highly significant effects on endoscopic response. Now, if one gets to endoscopic remission, even here you can see superiority. Uh, mucosal healing in this case means Basically no ulceration zero lesion seen and you can see that outcome doesn't doesn't operate very well And it probably doesn't work very well for any drug that we have Another anti p 19 antibody reported in Crohn's disease is this agent brzicomab, Formerly known as Medi 2070 and we reported that uh, This was successful in achieving clinical response in this phase 2a study. It missed its primary uh, uh... Missed the outcome of CDAI remission, um, but this did not incorporate endoscopies. However, it did incorporate a composite outcome where patients had to achieve either response or remission, as well as a 50% drop in either C reactive protein or fecal calprotectin. When you do that, you see that the placebo response rates are highly minimized, and it shows you a very marked drug effect really about 30% superiority. Perhaps the more interesting thing is that IL-22 levels seem to be highly predictive of which patients were going to respond to brazicumab. In fact, the patients who had lower than the median level in serum IL-22 were exactly like uh, placebo response rates, and the ones who were higher than median are the ones who entirely explained the drug effect so again this has to be validated in another data set but if it's true it makes biological sense because il-22 is induced by il-23 but it really needs to be validated and finally in for ulcerative colitis we have this recent data of murakizumab which is an anti-p19 antibody and about 63 percent of these patients were biologic failures or exposed there was a complicating dosing scheme. I won't go into the details of that, but some of it was exposure-based dosing. And you can see that at the mirikizumab 200 milligram dose level, there was about 17.8% superiority over placebo. So this drug clearly is effective in ulcerative colitis, and the approach in general works in ulcerative colitis. By contrast, and changing, turning the page a bit, Mondrasen, for which we had a lot of hope in Crohn's disease as an oral SMAD7 antisense oligonucleotide, you saw this very phenomenal data. But unfortunately, the phase three study in Crohn's disease was closed prematurely after an interim analysis. And so this drug does not move forward, despite its early promise. Now, what has a great deal of promise in terms of other small molecule small molecules are the JAK inhibitors. And these work um, in a number, in in a very specific way. Um, Basically what happens with JAK kinases is, is they sit below the surface of the cell, immune cells in particular. Cytokines bind to the cell surface receptors. JAKs are activated underneath the surface. They always come in pairs and they're activated by phosphorylation. And then this in turn phosphorylates sites on a receptor to recruit STATs within the cell, the stats themselves are phosphorylated and activated by the Janus kinases. And then they translocate into the nucleus and modulate gene expression. And then uh, basically, this is a self-perpetuating phenomenon, a bolstering inflammation. So if you interfere with this by inhibiting Janus kinases, you break this vicious cycle of inflammation within the cell and among cells. This is a mix-and-match system, there are JAKs 1 through 3 and TIC 2 and in various combinations beneath various cytokine receptors, you can see different signals sent within the cell. And so when you block JAK1, for example, you may be inhibiting IL-2, interferon gamma, uh, uh, and so on, uh, uh, interleukin-6 as well. And so the, the effects are complex and not specific for one cytokine, but actually multiple cytokines being blocked. Well, of course, six months ago, we saw the approval of tofacidinib in ulcerative colitis. This was based on this study published by uh, Bill Sanborn and many others uh, in the New England Journal um, a year ago, showing about a 10% effect size um, over placebo. Uh, in two independent studies, Octave 1 and Octave 2, and in the maintenance data, a very nice maintenance effect superiority. Mucosal healing also superior uh, for the drug in the induction studies and in the maintenance studies as well. One interesting point is the onset of effect is fairly rapid. The data published in the New England Journal showed clearly separation from placebo even at two weeks. But um, subsequent analyses looking at the subcomponents of the Mayo, sub- Mayo scoring system show that even as early as three days, you can see an effect on the rectal bleeding subscore with this agent. So it seems to work fairly quickly. There are a number of adverse events that you need to be aware of with tofacitinib, and probably uh, this may apply broadly to the JAK kinase inhibitors, although probably with some variation uh, depending on their spectrum of activity. One is that herpes zoster is increased with these agents, with tofacitinib certainly. You can see rates as high as 5%. This suggests that you may want to vaccinate patients with uh, the recombinant Uh, anti-herpes zoster vaccine. Um, This rate is higher than with anti-TNFs, but similar to what we might expect with thiopurines. Non-melanoma skin cancer is increased. Gastrointestinal perforation risk is not increased, despite the fact that IL-6 is inhibited. Um, Also, there's a LDL and HDL cholesterol increase in proportion to each other, so it's not certain at all that this increases the cardiovascular risk, but it is recommended that you check cholesterol Probably a baseline, but definitely at four to eight weeks after starting treatment, by which time the effect stabilizes. And those who meet criteria for treatment should get anti-lipid therapies. It's a small molecule, so there's no immunogenicity, leading to loss of response. There have been observed elevations of creatinine kinase, but likely no impact in the clinic. And there's little data in pregnancy. Unfortunately, this drug was studied in Crohn's disease, and uh, suffice it to say that in two different phase two studies, there was no therapeutic effect observed. By contrast, um, there are a couple of JAK1 more selective inhibitors, filgotinib, and I'll show you apatacitinib, which do seem to work in Crohn's disease. These are data for filgotinib in their phase two study showing clinical remission, response, endoscopic remission, and endoscopic response being achieved, And this is upadacitinib, another JAK1 inhibitor, which clearly at the doses 12 milligrams and higher show benefit not only symptomatically, but also very clear superiority endoscopically. Beautifully, these are small molecules. They're not immunogenic. They're oral and easy to take. The last mechanism that we'll talk about are the S1P1 receptor modulators. So these are interesting agents, and what's happening is that sphingosine 1-phosphate is found on the surface of lymphocytes in circulation, and when you uh, bind to this with an agent, this leads to receptor internalization on the lymphocytes, Therefore antagonizing their ability to detect a gradient in the lymph nodes and basically trapping them within the lymph nodes So the lymphocytes are not dead. They're just sitting there in the lymph nodes out of circulation and so consequently you see some lymphopenia in circulation Hosanamod well, is a modification really uh, same class as fingolimod used to treat MS, but it has a shorter half-life, um, a quicker lymphocyte recovery period. All these drugs have some effect potentially on uh, conduction in the heart, um, but this one seems to be a bit better and organ fibrosis was not seen as with fingolimod. So this agent has been looked at as an inductive agent and a maintenance agent in a phase two study and moves on in phase three. You can see remission, response, mucosal healing, and histologic remission. These were not a highly uh, biologic experienced population, not quite as sick. And you can see the longer term of clinical remission at week 32 was also achieved, particularly for the higher dose of one milligram. Um, and then this has also been validated with the second agent, atrasimod. This was the Oasis study that you heard about in the questions, and the two milligram dose seemed to be working pretty well in the three-component Mayo score, also endoscopic improvement and remission, particularly at the two milligram dose, and clinical response and remission at week 12 also achieved in UC. So, the broad things about safety are potential for conduction abnormalities, bradycardia, conduction abnormalities. This is a first dose effect, and then you get tachyphylaxis to that effect. There's a reversible lymphopenia, but interestingly, not increased risk of infections, seemingly there can be liver enzyme abnormalities there's question of macular edema this has not been seen in clinical trials and finally phosphodiesterase IV inhibitors namely a premolast, works by inhibiting inflammation within the cell another small molecule this phase 2 RCT and ulcerative colitis showed promising data it's unclear whether this moves forward in in uh, phase 3 or not but it surely looks like this mechanism works So in conclusion, there's a growing understanding of the pathogenesis of IBD, and this has led to a variety of both biologic therapies and small molecules that address diverse mechanisms. There's a sense of plateauing of outcomes with single agents, and so targeting agents and sequencing of agents and combinations really need to be studied to get us to the next stage where basically everyone can be well treated. So thanks very much for your attention.